Thanks for listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast. The advice given on this podcast is of a general nature only, and you should make your own decisions before taking any financial risks. If you would like to stay in touch with the show, join the Lazy Equity Facebook group or find the Investors Agency on Instagram and Facebook. Hello, mate. How are you going? Yeah, good, Bobby. How are you? Very good. Thanks for coming on. No, thanks for having me. It's exciting to be on. Is this your, uh, is this your first podcast? First podcast for property investing, which okay. is good. I was on a few for uh, fantasy sports, a few like that. I had a couple of good results in that okay. industry and I was asked to go on a few. So not new to the podcast scene, but this one's probably a bit more exciting. Okay. No, no well, fantasy sports is obviously quite big and I'm sure very exciting to a lot of people as well. So I'm going to touch on that a little bit later. I guess um, the reason I wanted to get you on is you're obviously spending quite a bit of time client facing at the moment at the investors agency, spending a lot of time speaking to clients and doing very well in the results that you're helping them achieve. So wanted to get the clients familiar with who you are, your background, where you've come from, and also just for the listeners as well, just to let, I guess, let them know a bit about the team at the investors agency and and who we are and, and i guess how we've gone about building the team to to where it is now yeah brilliant cool mate so what, how about in a few minutes why don't you tell me a bit about yourself on a personal level yeah sure i grew up youngest of four siblings out in rural new south wales near wagga wagga which was a lot of fun i really enjoyed being out in the country went to boarding school when i was 13 so first 13 years you were in wagga Yep. You've got three other siblings and you're the youngest. What are the ages of the other siblings? My brother is 33, yeah. Luke, Olivia and Sarah are 29 and 28 okay. and I have turned 27. So Ripe old age of 27. Yeah, I'm feeling it. <laughs> <laughs> working, with us for, working with us for a short time will make you feel like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I'm just kidding, guys. We've got a good culture here, I promise. <laughs> right. uh, cool. So you went to boarding school at 13? I did, yeah, yeah, in Canberra. It was a lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed it made me grow up a lot in a quick time frame. You kind of learn a bit more about the world and being a bit more independent, which is good. Yep. After that, I uh, attended University of Canberra and got a commerce degree, which is good. So I was in Canberra for about 10 or 12 years and then... And that's where the boarding school was? Yep, yep, in, in Canberra, which is good. I really enjoyed Canberra. It's a beautiful, beautiful city. Yep. Sydney's a bit bit more high pace, maybe a little bit more to do. Um, <laughs> but I really do have a soft spot for Canberra as well. It's very family orientated place, especially where I was. But it's been in Sydney since the start of last year. Yep. And I am loving my time in Sydney. Yeah, I'll just be here for a few more years. At least. <laughs> we hope so. Yeah. We hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you do have plans not to be, um, don't tell us at this stage. <laughs> no. <laughs> I want to touch on boarding school. You mentioned that it helped you grow up and, and helped you become the person that you are now. You and I have spoken previously and you were saying it broke some people. Yeah. Um, so it really depends on your personality type. I guess what do you consider your sort of personality to be like that thrived in that, in, in that environment, whereas other personality types that we're not able to thrive as much. What do you think that difference is with the personality types? Yeah, it is a different environment to a you know a normal normal childhood because I'm living with eighty other boys, you know, and you're thrust in when you you've got twelve and eighteen year olds who are you know young adults and men at that point. So so twelve year olds with eighteen year olds. That's right. Yeah. yeah okay. So it is a funny environment, and you learn a lot about different ages very very quickly, and because you're surrounded by so many, it can be tough you know, being away from your parents and that kind of thing. So you do have to develop a bit of a a backbone pretty quickly and a bit of ability to fend for yourself. So some people cope better than others. It's definitely not for everyone, but I really, really thoroughly enjoyed it. 
And I've mentioned to you a few times during the time that we've we've been working together, for someone of your age to have the head on your shoulders that you do, you're very composed, very mature. You're thinking of things on your personal life as well as your career that are well beyond other people of your age. Mm. Um, Do you think that comes down to your time at boarding school or do you think that's potentially your upbringing at home? I think it's a combination of many things. Lucky enough to have brilliant parents who have really educated me well as well. Yeah. And then in boarding school, you know, you'd learn a lot of things as well. So I think it is, it's not just one thing. Yeah. I think I'm quite a driven person as well. Naturally, that's just who I am. Yeah. I think I, I want to do well in the things that I do. And I, I choose to try my best in, you know, just about everything I do, which is good. But I think those two things definitely helped. And you said you're naturally driven and you like to do things at the best that at best of your ability. Tell us about your tennis. You played tennis at quite a high level yes. for a period of time. Let's talk about that. I'm not sure what age you were and how long you did that for, but yeah, I think that's really interesting for, for the listeners. started playing tennis when I was eight or nine, which is not the earliest age, but I just fell in love with the sport. I played, like you said, at a pretty high level. Yeah. Tried my absolute best. You know, it's quite diligent with the, the training process when you're at a high high level, and which is tough because you're a teenager and you, you sacrifice a lot to play a lot of tennis yeah but that was my passion at the time and I still love tennis I'm, yeah. I'm a bit past it and um, <laughs> now and I'll play whenever I, I like but I loved the element of competing as well like that was that was a lot of fun testing you, yourself you consider yourself a competitive person very much so yeah is that why you're constantly putting bets on with Mike and, and sometimes <laughs> sometimes yeah. not winning <laughs> yes yeah the one the one bet we've done this year on the uh the RBA I think I was a bit unlucky but <laughs> Um, so with the tennis at a high level, you said you used to play up up against like sort of Kyrgios and Dimonor and some of those guys at that age. Is that right? Yeah. So I've, I played against a couple of the those guys because I was in Canberra. You know, it was very common. Nick Kyrgios was a year above me and was very much not famous at the time. So we'd see him all the time training on the courts and stuff. And I did play against Dimonor once as well. I'm not sure if he would remember because he was just a, a 14 year old kid. And I think I was 18 <laughs> and he smoked me off the court. Really? He did, yeah. <laughs> And I'm, I got off the court and I said, who the hell is this kid? And then, really? Yeah, five wow. years later, he's... Where he is now. And yeah. at that age, he would have been... Because he growing up, he wasn't like the biggest or the most powerful, but he obviously was good enough or, or strong enough to, in your words, not mine, wipe you off the court, even though you were 18. Yeah, he was incredible. He was very fit. I was I just... All I remember from that match is serving quite fast, you know, 180 clicks, and then he was just standing inside, just standing him straight past me. So he had a lot of talent, and wow. it's good to see he's, he's gone on with it. Okay, cool. So in terms your first job out of uni what did that look like I went into mortgage broking out of uni because I always had a, a passion for finance and always had a passion for property hence the degree yes that's right yep I knew I wanted to end up in in property and finance in, at some capacity what that was I didn't know yeah um, I got an option to start in in mortgage broking and I didn't really know too much about it at the time sure and I thought that was a good mix of the two because it's very much finance and you're dealing with property. It's yep. probably a bit more more on the finance side than on the property side, which is why I eventually ventured out. Yeah. Did enjoy broking. It was, you know, I did that for a couple of years and it taught me a lot and helped me a lot to understand property and how the, the financial side of property, specifically investing works. Yeah. I think has given me a bit of a head start coming to a place like this as well. I think it definitely has, mate. So for for someone that doesn't have any experience personally buying property, for you to pick up things and, and run with it at the pace that you have here, I've said it to you many times before, it's hats off to you. I think a lot of that comes down to the previous roles that you had before you came to the investors agency. What do you think, obviously finance is the backbone of anyone wanting to invest, except for the top half a percent that just buy buying cash. But for every mm. everyone else, you need to have 
really good clarity on the finance side of things so then you can continue investing not just after one or two properties but after that as well what do you think it was specifically about the mortgage broking that has sort of helped you the most on the buying side for clients it is important to know your serviceability your borrowing capacity what your lvrs are and your equity potential on your properties how you can manipulate the banks to leverage the most money for you to invest the right way. Yeah. And if you understand that, then it does give you a bit of a bit of a jump with structuring your loans the correct way. If you yep. can structure your loans the correct way, as opposed to someone who doesn't, yep. you're miles ahead and you'll be able to leverage that to build a portfolio a lot easier than if you can't. Yeah. Do you want to give an example as to how someone might structure their loans in a way that will detriment them moving forward and or potentially just cap them at, at one or two properties? Or I guess this is the two pro- a two-pronged question. Do you want to let us know how someone could structure their loan in a way that would detriment their future serviceability, but also how someone might buy a property that would affect their future serviceability as well? Yeah, so a lot of it is down to a specific situation, an individual or a set of individuals. It is hard to answer that as a general rule because someone's financial income, you know, might be segregated over different areas. But for for your general person who's a PAYG employee, generally you... If you can get to that 20% deposit in a property, that's going to allow you to build a lot more equity faster or what I like to think of as usable equity because banks will generally like to borrow 80% of the property to you. And if you're borrowing with a 10% deposit on a purchase, you've got to find the equity or make the repayments down to get to that 20% mark. That's right. And then you can start once you get below that, that's when you can use the usable equity for future deposits and future purchases. Yeah. Okay. And what are you seeing is the common mistake of buyers at the moment in terms of trying to build their portfolio that do get stuck uh, after one or two properties? What are you seeing that that common mistake is? I think your first investment is is critical. You have to get it right, which is very much why I believe in what we do, because we're able to minimize that chance of it failing a lot. Yeah. Because if you can nail your first one in a high growth market with good rental return, because yeah. your rental return does go into your income, which banks will use Um, to increase serviceability. If you can nail that first one with great growth and great income, it's going to snowball your second and third purchase a lot faster as opposed to if you buy, you know, at this level and then in a year's time it's made, you know, the same growth as every other property, which is, you know, around 7%. You're not going to get that chance to build your portfolio as quick, which is is why I really like what we do. Yeah, and... You mentioned that the cash flow is really important as well, and that's that is so important. So often we speak to people who equity rich; they've got a ton of equity. Mm. They've never thought about the cash flow side of things, and those properties are costing them an arm and a leg to hold on to. We've just had twelve out of thirteen months of interest rate rises. So if your property was already negatively geared by a couple hundred bucks, and you've just had twelve rate rises, you'll probably have to sell that property now if you're an average person in Australia. So that's why cash flow is extremely important in terms of. Let's talk, let's touch on, you mentioned the banks will look at the rental income on your portfolio to add to your household income. What's the general rule there? Is there is Do they look at the whole rental income? Do they look at percentage of it? Do different banks look at things differently? Yeah, so different banks definitely look at things differently. Generally speaking, banks will take about 80% of your rental income. I do know very recently in the last few days, we've heard CBA has opened up a 90% use of that rental income, which which is going to increase serviceability because your income is allowed to be used more of which is you know exciting for people with portfolios with rental income who thought they might be capped in the serviceability perhaps they're not now and perhaps they have the chance to to purchase another property 
And we're going to get uh, Lachlan on the show uh, next week. Yeah. Who's, who's going to who can dive through all that? Shout so, out to Lachlan. Yeah, shout out to Lachlan. <laughs> so he um he yeah he just sent us a message yesterday and just gave yep. us gave us the heads up there. So it's very very fresh. But at the end of the day, the banks are in the business of lending money. That's right. The tighter things become in terms of interest rates or in the tighter things become in terms of the economy or interest rates, the banks have levers that they can pull to continue lending money. Now, one of these levers is what you've just mentioned, allowing for 90% rather than 80% of your rental income. Other levers they can pull, which I think will have to come down to APRA, but at the mm. moment there's a 3% serviceability buffer for anyone yep. that wants to get a new loan. They've just changed that to 1% with mm. a lot of the lenders. That's for people looking to refinance. However, over time, there is a high possibility that that will just go to anyone looking to get a, get a new loan potentially. The reason that 3% is in there is because if interest rates are at record lows, then the banks need to protect themselves for when interest rates rise. So you, That's right. they do that calculation off that 3%. But when interest rates are at record highs or at, at levels that are really high and inflation is starting to drop and unemployment is starting to rise and all the numbers are trending in that right direction and you can make a safe assumption that interest rates are going to start dropping, there's no reason to have that 3% buffer there. So That's right. Look, these are all the sorts of things that banks can 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 manipulate in order to, to lend more money because the more money they lend, the more money they make as well. Yeah, that's right. And weren't you saying yesterday that you knew you'd heard of some people who get up to an $80 billion bonus at Christmas time who work in the banking space? Yeah, I've heard of a $80 million Did I say billion bonus. or million? Million. It's okay. million. <laughs> $80 billion would be nice. No, I meant million. Yeah, $80 million Christmas bonus. Something. Not everyone gets that. So <laughs> for the rest of us, mere mortals, we have to, to find another way to do it. That's madness. Yeah. Cool. So after you finished mortgage broking, or how long were you were you in, a, uh, in the mortgage broking company for? Roughly about 18 months, two years. I was in a very small firm, so I was thrown into the deep end really quickly, which yep. is why I was able to learn so much so fast. Yep. But got to a time where you know, I was looking to to venture out more into the property space. I made the move to Sydney, like I said, at the, the start of last year into a, a property investment company, which is really good. Yep. We mainly focused on off the plan work, sure. different to what to what we do. Yep. Not to say one is completely different to the other yep. um, in terms of what it's going to do from a, a growth perspective. So with your off the plan kind of purchases, you're really banking on making that that growth in the construction phase and the settlement phase. So you per, you sign a contract for off the plan. Most likely, it's going to take about eighteen to two year, eighteen months to two years before you actually settle. Yep. So where you can actually really go well in off the plan is you purchase property for five hundred grand. Eighteen months down the track, two years down the track, it could be valued at six fifty, six hundred something, yep. something along those lines. So without paying a whole lot of interest to the bank you've already made yourself maybe 20% equity, something like that, depending on how it goes. Now that is riskier because what happens if in that development, the developer doesn't sell all the lots or doesn't make the sales that is needed, then the supply is greater, the demand is lower for those properties. Therefore, you're not going to see the same amount of growth, which is where, where we do it a lot different. We're able to actually focus on the data from economists and the the forecasts in specific markets and minimize the chance of slower growth. Yeah, minimize that chance of oversupply because if you're looking at things like 
uh, vacancy rates within an area or if you're looking at things of in regards to how scarce the land is or how much supply there is, how much demand there is, you sort of you know at the moment what that market's doing and, and you can see if in the next 12 months if there's more stock coming forward or not. But yeah, if there is a couple of hectares and, and the land's being chopped up and there's hundreds of houses going in, you just need to hope that there's enough buyers to, to soak up that, that supply. Or if there's hundreds of apartments, you sort of need to hope that that supply will, will dry up. But like you said, if you time it right... Uh, it can be very fruitful, very fruitful with not much money down. Mm. Um, so there's pros and cons. What made you choose to go to an, a buyer's agency, agency that just focuses on established properties? Or was it the case that when we did, did interview you, when we started working together, you hadn't made that decision yet? You were just seeing what other options there are out there? No, I was pretty, pretty set on getting into the established property field. In what capacity, I wasn't 100% sure when we, we first initially started speaking. But I did know with established, you can, like like I was saying before, you can actually really target an area based on data yeah. rather than, which you can with developments as well. Don't get me wrong. You can find a development in the markets, you know, similar to what we're looking at. Yeah. But where I like established is with the new properties, they're always going to be at the top of the market in terms of a price. You're paying for a premium. They look the nicest. They're the newest. People want them straight away. Yeah. So they're going to be the premium. Let's say in a market, they're going to cost you seven hundred grand. For example, we can get the same type of asset in that same market. You know, for example, a four bedroom, two bathroom, and it might only cost us five hundred. So yep. later down the track, you get greater depreciation because, as we know, your dwelling depreciates and your land appreciates. Yep. But eventually, over time, they're going to even out in terms of price. So you capacity for growth over time there's a larger opportunity um, for greater growth when you're starting in the middle or the bottom of that market i 100 percent agree with you so i've got an opinion with uh with new and off the plan properties hence why we focus on on established but as i've said already you can do well with the Mm -hmm. off the plan properties but the reason why generally we well we always stick to the established properties is you've touched on it already i just want to sort of reiterate it as well is you are buying that property at a cheaper price if it is established for a very same dwelling that if it's new, you're paying higher for that property. And we've actually done the numbers because we do often get clients who say that they want to buy something new because of the depreciation. Yep. Uh, so I've crunched these numbers a lot of times before. And correct me if I'm wrong, you might actually know better than me, but say for a $500,000 property, your annual depreciation, let's just say it's a $500,000 property, or let's just say it's a $700,000 property that's brand new. What's an average depreciation on a property like that? Yeah, maybe 10, 12 grand. So you, you, on a new property, yep. you could get really, really strong appreciation maybe more so would you say after 10 years or after 20 years you're probably looking at 150 200,000 dollars in depreciation yeah yeah but then that's not is that the tax is that the amount that's actually reduced off your tax or then it comes down to each person's tax tax bracket and how much they can claim is that right i believe it's reduced off your taxable income so it's not money back in your pocket yeah it's it's just going to contribute to your tax savings cool and then so I guess these are the numbers that I've crunched. So let's just say over 20 years, you uh, you save about, you reduce about $250,000 of your taxable income, which is a fair amount of money, right? Mm. If that property grows at say 4% per annum rather than 8% per annum, so 8% is just above the Australian average, 4% is obviously below generally those areas which have more supply coming in or um, there's no scarcity they generally grow at that three or four percent mark whereas mm. the other properties are at seven or eight properties we buy are above 10 but let's just go off eight percent that difference between four percent and eight percent over 20 years is nearly a million bucks yeah so that's what people don't realize 
oh, that's on a $500,000 property where it's like, you know, you can save a couple hundred thousand dollars in tax over that 10 or 20 years. However, if you're getting a 3% or 4% difference in capital growth annually over that time, it's it far outweighs the depreciation that you get during that time. That's the reason why we stick to, to established. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The compounding interest will outweigh your, your tax savings, like compounding interest in terms of the growth yeah. will far outweigh over a long, long time period. I saw this video the other day where it was just on social media and it's it's us, random people, would you rather a million dollars today or a dollar a day that doubles for a month? And then most people will just say, yeah, I'll take a million dollars today. But if you actually do the numbers... Doubles for a month? Doubles every day for a month, what 30 is, days. What is the difference? I can't remember the figure, but I think it's around $5 million. No way. So you wow. far lose by by just taking the million up front, which is, you know, it's a similar type of situation with tax savings or compounding interest in terms of 8% growth versus 4% growth. Yeah. You're going to lose out. Well, I think Einstein had a quote where he said compound interest is the eighth one, yeah, ninth yeah. wonder of the world. Yeah, something like that. Goes to show. And you see it with property portfolios a lot of the time where the first three, four years, even four, five years, uh, you see the growth, but it's not really. The growth is there, but it's not on a trajectory that it is after 10, 20, 30 years in comparison, the, the, in comparison to the debt that you have on that portfolio. Yeah. Um, purely to do with comp- compounding. Yeah, that's right. So you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that this isn't your first podcast. Yes. Jumped into my mind now, so I want to backtrack to that. Mm -hmm. And you talked about the fantasy, so Fantasy League. Yeah. Can we touch on that a little bit? Because I know you said that you think that's quite similar to investing. And I'm forgive my ignorance, I'm a mid-30-year-old father of two, (laughs) and I don't know what what this Fantasy League that you children speak of is. So can you you explain to me what that is and how you think it's so similar to what you've learned at investing? Sure. So... Just for a you know, bit of context, my parents are both from South Australia. AFL, very big sport in that state. They moved to Wagga when I was, before I was born. So Was that I, for work? Yeah, for work. I've always lived in Wagga, but always had a bit of South Australian in me and I'm very big on my AFL. In high school, we got into a bit of playing fantasy sports. It is quite big, especially in the US with the NFL, but in the AFL, it's a very big space as well. Every year, there's about 150, 160,000 people who play this game. Wow. And it took me a few years. I've probably played for about seven or eight years now. And you kind of learn how to play the, the game. But it's it's very much about a player's given a set price. How they perform will dictate if they increase in value or decrease in value. So it's live. So let's just say the round... Round six just finishes. If yep. someone has a good game, then their price rises a little bit. If someone has a bad game, their price r- um, decreases a little That's bit. That's right, yeah. Okay. So it's more so about building a a value for your team and increasing your net wealth okay. rather than knowing who's going to perform well. Okay. But it's about buying a player low. They're going to increase in price. Then you can use that to reinvest into another player okay. and get a uh, better asset so to speak. So last year I had a very good season. I finished second. Wow. Out of uh, 159,000 players, which was very good. But there is a lot of luck, but you need to understand that kind of theory. Yeah. And it's the same players don't win every year, but people do very well every year after year. Yeah. Um, okay. So that was last year you came second. Yeah. Where'd you go? Can we ask what you went the year before? The year before, I think I was 300th. Okay. So, so that's still very, very good. Yeah. Top, top what percent is that? Top couple percent? Less. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So I did have a, I've had a few good years. I think the year before that I was about 600 or 700. So okay. last three years I've been very, very strong. Nice. But it is interesting that 
I find property investing and this uh, fantasy game so similar <laughs> because you you've got to you've got to know how how that kind of theory works. Hundred percent, that's right. And so so you obviously need to follow the sport in quite a bit of detail if you're trying to pick. Like for example, yeah, if yeah, we yeah, if yeah. we relate it back to property investing, there's a whole range of data sets that we look at to predict a market that has been dormant for six or seven years that based on population moving in, based on so many jobs being created, based on the debt-to-income ratio uh, being so low, based on land scarcity and and no new supply coming forward, we know that there is a market, even though it's been dormant, it's going to perform really well in the years to come. That's right, yep. And in in this regards, in terms of the fantasy league, you need to know, okay, well, this player does have that, He's, he might only be 19 or he might only be mm. 18, but yeah. he's shown that he has certain skills and, he, and he, yeah. he, he can play, but he's going to have a few years before he matures. That's right. So um, those, the, the new new players into, into the league will be cheap. You know, you might buy them at a very cheap price, but they're going to perform at a better price. So they're going to be a good investment or a good purchase. Same with property. You know, we're not buying properties in these markets for today. Yeah. We're getting in cheap for 10 years' time when they've gone up a lot in value. Yeah. We're not buying in these markets for what the markets have been. They're gentrifying. These markets are changing. Yeah. We're getting in now. So it's the same type of type of um, principles. So with the Fantasy fantasy League, you obviously have the same team every year and it just rolls over to the following year? So, um, if, you, so if you've invested in certain players three years ago because they were 18-year-olds, you still have them in your team assuming you haven't sold them? Is the, that how it works? There's a, yeah, there's, so there's two different formats. You can do that kind of that kind of league, but the one where you're versing everyone in, in Australia or everyone in the world is playing, you pick a new team every year. Yeah, okay. So it, it resets, the prices will reset based on how players perform the last season. You know, if there's uh, a change to a player's team or something or a change to their kind of role on the field, then that's going to impact how they perform. Same with market conditions in property. Yeah. If, you know, population is set to increase, that's going to change that condition in that market's performance. Yeah. Okay, I'll have to. Uh, I was going to say I'll have to have a crack, but I'll be useless at it, so I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to have a crack at it. I'll stick to property investing. Yeah, you might. <laughs> <laughs> what are you seeing? So we went off a bit, a bit of a tangent there, but it just popped into my head. So yeah. I, wanted to, I wanted to mention it. You're obviously speaking to clients on a daily basis, buying yeah. property on a daily basis. We've just had twelfth rate rise in thirteen months. Now the cash rate sitting at four point one percent. What are you seeing in the markets that we are buying in for clients at the moment? And what have you seen over the past 12 months? Biggest thing I'm noticing in these markets as we've been purchasing, you know, in these markets for um, a few months now is it's a notable change in, in purchasing. So it's, these markets are so competitive. When we were first entering in these markets a few months ago, you're not competing with as many buyers. And when People start to catch up to us. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you can say that, mate. Yeah. Give us a plug. <laughs> yeah. We're first into these markets. When people start... But on, on that, and I mean, we're, I'm sort of taking the piss a little bit here, but I mean, like it's it's true to an extent because I'm always for giving the, the, the company a plug on the podcast. So yeah. thanks, mate. But how often do we go into a market where we speak to an agent? It's a market that we've just gotten into where we're speaking to the real estate agents there and they've never dealt with a buyer's agent before. Yeah, at the start all the time. Um, that's very, very common, which is why, because we are very, very much at the start purchasing in these markets, we build good relationships with them from the, the onset. Yeah, They want to deal with us, which gives us a edge over the other buyers agents, the other buyers looking in there because we have good processes and, and we're good to deal with. We're on top of a lot of things. Yeah. So at the start, very much so. 
fast forward a few months, now it's way more competitive. People have caught up to us. They're buying there all the time as well. Yeah. It's trickier to purchase at a at a great price. Yeah. But because it's competitive in the market, it also tells us that we're buying in the right area as well. Yeah, and it's interesting how much our conversion rate decreases when these mar- for on-market properties mm. when the demand goes in. So like when we first – I'll use some of the councils in Perth at the moment that we're buying in. When we first started buying in those markets, our conversion rate with off-market properties was extremely – with on-market properties was extremely high. That's right. Now our conversion with on-market properties is extremely low. What would you say – if we're finding a property on market for a client, how many do you think we're converting on a percentage basis? 30%. Wow. So we're losing 70% and that's mm-hmm. because other people are paying more than we think the properties are worth that's right. uh, for our clients. So this is the sort of demand that, that we're seeing in these markets at the moment. In terms of off-market properties, what percentage of the properties that we're buying at the moment do you think are off-market? In the realm of 70 to 80%, I would say we're purchasing off-market purely because as soon as it goes on market, we don't want to overpay for a property. We'll set a limit. We're quite strict with that limit. Yeah. But then you'll get people who go past us. And if that's that's the case, good luck to them. That's Definitely. for that's for on market. That's for on market. Yeah. yeah. So that they'll might overpay for the property. We won't. We'll yeah. we'll stick to stick to what we think it's worth and what we yeah. would be comfortable to pay. So they're easier easier to purchase off market property because yeah. we're not competing with as many people on market it gets it gets quite difficult and it is a tricky job as a buyer, for a buyer's agent and i'm sure we've got clients who are listening to this as well yes. but it is a it is a tricky job for a buyer's agent because we'll find a property we know it's an amazing opportunity and we know it's under comparable sales we know it's a great deal we know there's a time limit on this property where we have to move on it in a very short amount of time. Otherwise, it's going to go on the market mm. or otherwise another buyer's agent might have the opportunity to look at it. So for us, it's a fine line between giving our clients the facts and the data and, and providing them with all the information and giving them time to review it all, but then also letting them know that it is time sensitive and they might need to move quickly on that property how have you found juggling that conversation with clients in terms of a good property that comes up quickly because especially for first home buyers it can be very very daunting to make a property make a decision on a property fast how are you finding that conversation because i know it can be exciting when you find an amazing deal but you also don't want to scare the client in terms of um getting them to make a rush decision yeah that's right i mean we do do a lot of due diligence before we get to a a presentation or before we discuss a a potential property with them. Yeah. Um, what sort of can we can we run through what what's the some of the due diligence that we do before we present it or when we present a property to a client? Yeah, absolutely. So we'll look at the location extensively as a number one. What are the surroundings? What are you know? Is it in a flood zone? Is it in a bushfire zone? Yeah. Are there easements on the property that are going to not allow us to build for potential future value add? Is it surrounded by any housing commission which is going to potentially decrease the value of that neighbourhood yep. um, or that street more specifically. Yep. So we do do a large amount of research into the location and the property itself. Yeah, we were uh, we were literally half an hour ago, we were just having a chat about a property with the with the team where I came over and, and, oh, and yeah. uh, there was a, a property that was across the road from a top private school within mm. a certain suburb. And look, we were having that chat with the team or the whole team was involved in giving their opinion as to whether buying across the road from a school is a positive or a negative and there was so many things that you had to weigh up like across the road from the school is it is it the yard is it a classroom 
Is it a hall? What type of school is it? How wide is the street? What the, the road is, yeah. What the road is. So there's so many things that you want to consider and it's not not uh, not black and white, is it? No, it's not. It's very much different. And that's, we're buying property every day, but each property is, is completely different. There's uh, almost a different conversation on a different property every few hours, which is kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I was saying like with that instance across the road, we all agreed that the convenience of being across the road from a top school in the area will outweigh the negatives, which is too much school noise or traffic at school time. Yep. We all agreed that that convenience will outweigh the ne- the positives will outweigh the negatives. Yep. But then we also agreed that if that property was across the road and it was sharing a boundary to the school, we probably wouldn't we go, would we wouldn't go ahead with it. Yeah, yeah, because you might have kids jumping over the fence or you might have balls come into your backyard or uh, it's just a little bit too close for our liking. So, right. so yeah, it's... it's it could be it's, a fine line. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very fine line. Exactly, that's right. So, cool. So we're seeing a ton of demand at the moment. Have you seen demand increasing over the last sort of 12 months in the markets where we have been buying in? Absolutely, yeah. Demand for properties in the area is in- increasing. That's And that's largely shown with our on-market success rate, as demand increases, competition increases, it's harder to, to compete with as many people. Yeah. Um, not to say we can't do it because we do move quickly. Yeah. So we're often very first first in to, to look at the property yeah. um, and, and go through our due diligence pra- phase, which yeah. is good. But it's also you know a little bit about picking your battles, what is going to be the best chance of securing a property for a great deal. So we do go through those kinds of questions as well. Yeah. Okay. So moving forward, uh, I know you, I know we always have these fun chats in the office in regards to um, what the market's going to do and what interest rates are going to do and all that yes. sort of stuff. And I know you have strong opinions of this and, and yeah. we're always <laughs> talking about it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on where interest rates are going to go from here, given the data that's been announced thus far. And what do you think that's going to do to the property markets? We know there's thousands of different markets. So do you think different markets will be impacted differently? And what do you think the interest rates are going to do moving forward? Yeah. So firstly, I think We've seen, as you said, banks drop their buffer rate, which, so your interest rate, so for people who don't know, your interest rate can be one thing, let's say it's 6%. Yep. The banks will actually assess your your loan if your buffer is 1% on a 7% interest rate. Yeah. Over the last maybe two years, we've seen the buffer, like you said, jump to 3%. Yep. So they're assessing you on a much higher level. Now it's dropped to, to 1%, yep. which means the banks think we're getting close to the top yep. of the interest rate. So my crystal ball is <laughs> <laughs> <Just> telling you. <laughs> I think we'll we'll see maybe a couple more rate rises before the end of the year and then we'll start to see it smooth down and then we might have a few months where it it kind of just stays where it's where it's at yep. and then mid to maybe the third quarter of next year is when we'll start seeing drops. Okay. Interesting. I um I probably would have agreed with you until yesterday. I the the most recent GDP numbers came out and the Australian economy grew by only 0.2% and mm, that's okay. the slowest growth since uh, that's for the March quarter. Yep. That's the slowest growth the Australian economy has had since September 2021 20, when we the economy shut down because of COVID. Yep. I would like to think that the RBA had those numbers when they made their decision the day so. before, You'd hope like so. it only got announced, it, the ABS only released it yesterday. Okay, but surely the RBA would have access to that data one day earlier. You think um, they? It didn't stop them from Tuesday's rate rise, but like I, I really think if your economy has just grown at the slowest rate since a COVID lockdown, 
that's going to be a big driver to to put a pause on interest rates. It, it really has to. That's that's what I'm thinking after after yesterday's data that's come out. Yep. Um, but if we were if if it was prior to that, I would have I would have said I think there's going to be a few more rate rises just because inflation's still very sticky. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it is impossible to know. No one knows, and conditions and inflation will change from last quarter to this quarter. GDP yeah. will change as well. Whether it flattens out and actually gets into a negative for a quarter, and that might stop them. I'm not sure. Um, yeah. You know, I don't even know if Philip Lowe knows. But um, <laughs> <laughs> they just they just make a decision off the cuff sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's tricky to see. I, I would like to see rates drop at the start of next year. I'm just not sure. They do. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's a really difficult one. But the other thing we've seen as well is now that we're getting to the top of the rates, whether it's the actual top, we're not sure. But we're starting to see demand come back in a lot of markets around Australia, not yep. just the markets we're looking in. They Those demands have actually increased the markets we're looking in. But other markets we're monitoring, and we do monitor all the markets in Australia, yep. we're starting to see demand and, and, and prices, not the drop levels start to slow and even levels of growth in a lot of markets as well well even like it's it's such an interesting time because like debt to income ratio is one of the biggest things we consider and one of the reasons we haven't been buying in sydney for some time and lots of new south wales is because the debt to income ratio was so high as soon as we knew as soon as interest rates go up there's going to be a correction in those markets and we've seen those markets with the highest debt to income ratios drop the most being sydney's northern beaches eastern suburbs up to a 20 percent drop in some instances yep so just based off that, you're not expecting capital growth to come forward until interest rates decrease or until wages catch up. Wages haven't caught up. I mean, there's been nominal wage growth, especially for people who are buying on eastern suburbs and northern beaches. Um, mm. I think the wage growth was those on the on the middle, minimum incomes. Yep. Those who live on eastern suburbs and northern beaches are not on minimum incomes. So for them, wages generally haven't really grown. It's such an interesting time, though, because all the data tells us that there's not going to be growth, but... Sydney's just grown and Northern Beaches and Eastern Suburbs is the front, like it has had the most amount of growth. There's been about 1.5%, between 1% to 1.5% monthly growth over the last three months. If this continues, Sydney's going to be about 15% more expensive in 12 months' time Mm. than it is now. But... Like the, the the debt is so high, like all the numbers. There's no there's no data that's leading us, making us understand how that's happening, bar migration. Like it's just that's right. You know, obviously that's why it's such an interesting time because we've never had migration this strong straight after a a, a, a downturn. So you know, it, it's sort of like you look at data based, you look at historical data to predict the future. But if what you're looking at is not the same as previous then it's really hard to predict what's going to happen in terms of these capital cities that are seeing such a big influx of migration yeah that's right and that's the number one thing that i look at when looking at a market as well is supply and demand that's got to be the number one indicator of growth is demand there is supply low yeah if if those answers are yes there's only one way the market can go and if we're seeing people flock in to these areas then that's going to ring true and Demand is just going to increase. Supply is going to drop. Whether we're talking the rental market or capital growth, it's still the same same thing. A lot yeah. of the markets we purchase in, we're seeing, you know, for example, when we're looking at rents, rents rentals available on domain and real estate are minimal, often less than five properties available in any given week. So it's madness. You can almost write to your own number, and you'll 
might get a tenant for it. So, I, yeah, I have a lot of value on supply and demand on, in the market. That's another thing I wanted to touch on. So for investors, higher interest rates, I don't think it's having an impact for many investors. Uh, I think it's owner-occupiers that are feeling that. And personally, I've got investment properties and owner-occupied property. My investment portfolio is larger, value is larger than the owner-occupied value. Yep. My investment portfolio, the cash flow has not been impacted at all during mm. this time, nominal during this time. It's the owner occupied where the debt is less and the value is less. That's been impacting me the most because as an owner occupier, you're the one that needs to pay off your own debt over time. As an investor, if rents are going up 15% per year, which yeah. they are, you're keeping in line with your $400,000 mortgage that might go up another you know, 1% or 0.5%. That's right. You're getting a 15% rental growth. That's right, which is you know another point. When we do go through interest rate rises as well, often we'll see the markets we're buying in, rental rises at equivalent, if not greater rates than what interest rates are rising. So you're, like you said, your cash flow is not actually affected. You'll almost be in a similar position, maybe give or take either way, Yeah. Um, but it's going to be around about the same. So interest rates rising is not necessarily a bad thing for investors. You just have to look at it from a whole perspective, yeah, look a portfolio at, perspective. Exactly, look at it holistically. I think... Um, one thing for investors to be really mindful of as well, and this is something that we look at as well, as you know, we know if the yields get to a point, if the yields get high enough, we know there's going to come a point where rents are going to stop growing or slow down drastically that's right. and capital growth is going to catch Kick up. In. And that's just because if someone's paying more for rent than they would be for their mortgage, they're going to go buy the property. Absolutely. Or even if it's close to the same amount, they'll go and buy the property. Yep. At the moment, we're seeing rents increase across the whole country. Mm. Because we're seeing 350,000 people coming to the country. Yep. We're not seeing any new supply coming forward because builders are, are struggling. Too slow. Uh, builders are too slow and, and, and struggling. So we're seeing supply at all-time low, demand at all-time high. These people coming into the country are renting. So rents are increasing significantly. There's going to come a point, whether it be, well, we're already seeing national values increase, but there's going to come a point when interest rates stabilise or decrease, whether it be in two months' time or six months' time or 12 months' time, you're going to have dropping interest rates. You're going to have an extra 700,000 people in the country. You're going to have no supply and you're going to have all these people that are renting being able to then buy property at a very similar price because yields have gone up to a, to a such a high point yep. in a lot of the markets outside of Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah, that's right. It's gonna, uh, it'll, it'll tip. It has to. Yeah. Um, then when that's, that happens, like you said, your capital growth will kick in. Yeah. Common misconception people say is, well, I was a, at a 6.5% rental yield, but now I'm only at a 6% rental yield. That doesn't necessarily mean your 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 cash has actually dropped. It just means your property has gone, gone up. up. <laughs> so exactly. your, your rental yield has dropped, but you've actually made more money. Exactly, exactly. That's right. And I guess the, uh, the, uh, the final thing I wanted to touch on, unless there's anything else you wanted to touch on, is we've been talking about, I just mentioned how very confident, whether it be in six months, 12 months or 24 months, that we're going to see some extremely strong capital growth mm. when interest rates stabilise or drop. That's not to say the markets we're buying in and not seeing capital growth now. All the markets we're buying in at the moment are still doing a minimum of 10% and we're getting clients who are recycling their equity within 12 months That's right. um, to go again. It's just we're not seeing that 30 40% that we were when interest rates were at 2%. Yep. Now the markets are... Sitting, seeing that ten to fifteen percent mark. So it's going to be interesting to see. Interesting to see what happens. But um, is there anything else that you wanted to share before you are uh, before we leave? I don't don't think so. I think we um, had a pretty good in depth discussion. It was good fun. You did well on your first time, mate. Oh, thanks, <laughs> thanks, Bobby. <laughs> All right, thank you. Thanks for coming on, mate. No worries. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks for listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast. 
The advice given on this podcast is of a general nature only, and you should make your own decisions before taking any financial risks. If you would like to stay in touch with the show, join the Lazy Equity Facebook group or find the Investors Agency on Instagram and Facebook.